0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Then,
1: after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised,
0: Well, as you just heard from our sister here this morning, we're just trucking through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches that were in Galatia. And this morning we're going to be concentrating on chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the title of our sermon this morning is going to be Gospel Unity, Gospel Unity. We are focusing on this idea of what it looks like to be united around the one true gospel because really that's what Paul is driving at here in our verses this morning. And so before we get started and dive into our text, we're going to pause, we're going to pray, we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to close this time with power from on high and then we'll turn our attention to these verses here. So let me encourage you with this, um, just to to steal what Pastor Tom often says to you during the pastoral prayer time, Uh, use this time to be proactive in prayer. And maybe this morning my encouragement would be this, Uh, maybe look to your left and your right, um, and see who's sitting next to you along on the row with you, and actively pray for them right now. Um, one of the, my favorite verses in all of Scripture, my favorite section of verses is Luke 24, where the two disciples were rock- walking on the road to Emmaus with Jesus. And they said, Did not our hearts burn within us as he, Jesus, open up the Scriptures to us? And a little bit later, Jesus is saying It was He who opened their eyes to see Him, and it was He who opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And that's what we desire this morning. My encouragement would be to pray that for the person that's maybe sitting next to you this morning, that God would descend, open our eyes to see Jesus in the text this morning, stir our hearts, cause our hearts to burn within Him, because He has helped us to understand the Scriptures and see Him and our need for Him, okay? Let's do that right now, then we'll dive into 2, 1 through 10. Father, that is our prayer this morning. It is to see You. To see You, the King. To see You, the Messiah. To see You, the Christ. The resurrected One. The One who has defeated Satan. The One who has defeated sin. The One who has defeated death. Our aim this morning is to magnify Your name by centering our lives Centering our mind on you to steal from the old hymn, but our hearts are prone to wander. They're prone to leave the God we love, which is why we need you, Holy Spirit, to tune our hearts to receive and see your grace in the person of the Lord Jesus this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Immerse us. May we say this morning, along with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, as a result of God delighting to magnify His Son, did not our hearts burn within us as Jesus opened our minds to understand the Scriptures and see Him? in the name of the resurrected Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you, little voice, wherever you just came from. Amen is right. Uh, Think on these three names, family. All right? Uh, I'm sure they'll sound familiar to you. Uh, Ethan Hunt. All right? James Bond. Jason Bourne. Uh, There's a commonality that runs between them, a tie that binds, all right? All three of these characters, whether you've read the books or you've seen the movies or whatever it might be, all three of these characters, they're just known for many things. But if they are known for one thing, it's they're known for being spies. Uh, Armed with various gadgets and trained in secrecy, their jobs as spies was one typically of sabotage, right? They would receive a mission, their aim was to sneak into some place, wreak havoc, and then slip out undetected. And if they were able to do this, go into some place and disrupt it, sneak into some place and destroy it, go somewhere and damage anything, wreaking havoc in that place, then we would say, mission accomplished. Jason Bourne, James Bond, Ethan Hunt, they, they were successful in their mission ...as being a spy. Spies exist to disrupt. Spies exist to destroy. Spies exist to damage. And it's when we turn to our text this morning, it's this very issue of spies damaging, destroying, and disrupting that is going on in our text... Paul tells us in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, specifically in verse 4, that spies pretending to be Christians had slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus because their aim was to bring us back into slavery, says Paul. The aim of these spies was essentially gospel sabotage. And like any good spy, their attempt at sabotage was subtle there in the churches of Galatia. And the heart of their sabotage was disruption, namely the desire to disrupt the gospel unity that existed among the early church. It was spies like these which had infiltrated the churches of Galatia. False brothers, says the Apostle Paul who were dead set on not only undermining the apostleship of Paul, but also seeking to subvert the very gospel he proclaimed. Because, after all, if these spies could come in, if their aim was to disrupt and to destroy and to damage gospel unity, and the one who came into the churches of Galatia was Paul, if they could somehow subvert the authority of the apostolic calling of Paul, then they could surely sabotage the message that was coming from that man. And so with great clarity and with great force, Paul has spent the first chapter, 24 verses of this letter to the Galatians proving that his apostleship was through Jesus Christ. It wasn't something that he just decided to do. And his gospel was received by revelation from Jesus Christ. His apostleship was not through man nor through men, nor was his gospel from men or through man. But it was these twin realities, apostleship of Paul, gospel of Paul, which these false brothers had sought to sabotage. And that explains why Paul has taken a whole chapter, chapter 1, to address these issues before he ever moves on into the gospel issues that were at stake in Galatia. Now, you come out of chapter 1 and you're like, okay, I think he's established a point, right? But then you read the first 10 verses of chapter 2 and you're like, he is still going on about this stuff. And the question is, why? Why? Why does Paul expend the very first chapter, 24 verses, to this reality of defending the gospel, defending his apostleship, only to transition to chapter 2 and be like, and I still need to talk about this some more. Continuing to take up the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and it's for this reason here, because there was also another tactic that was at play among the spies. Tactic 1, discredit Paul, because if we can discredit Paul, we can discredit his gospel. But if tactic one was not going to be successful, then they had in their baggage of disruption tactic number two. And tactic number two was something along the lines of divide and conquer. You see, if the spies were unable to discredit Paul, if they were not going to be successful in discrediting his gospel of grace alone then perhaps they could destroy this gospel of grace movement that was at work there among the churches of Galatia by going within these churches and suggesting that Paul's gospel of grace is actually somehow different from the gospel preached by the Jerusalem apostles. Men like Peter, James, and John. It's that whole house divided idea. That was their second tactic. If we can somehow start spreading around that when Paul is sitting there saying it's Jesus plus nothing, that is your only hope of salvation, and somehow begin to insinuate and suggest that those guys that are pillars back in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, what they're actually preaching as the gospel is opposite of what Paul is preaching as his gospel. Because they're good spies. Spies. They want to disrupt. They want to damage. They want to divide. And so they've snuck into the churches of Galatia, and this is what is on their lips. If they could prove that Paul's gospel of Jesus plus nothing was at odds with Peter's gospel, which he proclaimed, then they would be able to walk away saying, Mission successful. Because not only have we divided the unity among the apostles, but we've also brought down that gospel of grace, which we do not want to thrive. And so, knowing that the truth of the gospel is at stake, Paul begins by reminding us that gospel unity is crucial. Gospel unity is crucial you got to remember here, and I want you just to tuck this away because we're going to get to this in an applicational sense later on. Right now in these verses, you're sitting here going, wow, uh, great for Titus. The guy didn't have to get circumcised. What on earth does that have to do with me? Because you read these first verses and you understand like this is a problem with very specific details that is taking place among the churches of Galatia. What I want you to see is that the essence of the problem here in Galatia is this. The gospel was attempting to be distorted. And Paul says, in his instance, "...I will not sit back and let the gospel be distorted on my watch." For him, the scenario was gospel distortion by Jesus plus obedience to the Jewish law, specifically circumcision. That is what must happen in order to be saved. We read it earlier during our scripture reading in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. The argument of these false brothers was that if you want to be saved, you must be circumcised according to the law custom of Moses translation if you want to be saved yes Jesus plus you got to do some works man you got to add something to that Jesus thing because that's the only way you'll be able to stand before God and go yes God look I'm trusting in Jesus and look at what I did and Paul's saying "No. no 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 that's gospel distortion And we will not allow these false brothers to come in with a false gospel and divide the unity that exists among the believers on the one true gospel. Hence, we got to strike at gospel unity. Gospel unity is absolutely crucial. And that's what we see in these first three verses. Just look at how he begins writing there in verse 1. Paul says this, After 14 years... The implication is it's 14 years after his Damascus Road conversion. I went up again to Jerusalem and I took two guys along with me. Barnabas, very safe move. Barnabas is like the Jewish man's Jewish man. He's good. Pun intended, he's kosher. All right? Titus, not so much. He's a Gentile, he's a Greek, he's uncircumcised. And here's Paul rolling into basically ground zero, headquarters of the Jerusalem apostles, the church there at Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, the influential ones, the ones who are pillars. And Paul's rolling in with Barnabas and Titus. He says, I went up because of a revelation, and while I was there, I sat before them... The them there are Peter, James, and John. It was a private conversation before those who seemed influential, Peter, James, and John. What I set before them was this, the gospel that I was proclaiming among among the Gentiles. And I did this in order to make sure I was not running or had not run my gospel race, this ministry that I have. I wanted to make sure I wasn't running that race in vain. So remember, the point of verses 1 through 10, you cannot lose sight of this, is to prove to the churches of Galatia that the gospel Paul proclaimed is the same gospel proclaimed by Peter because ultimately there is only one true gospel. So contrary to the accusations, the gospel of God's grace is what unified Paul and the Jerusalem apostles. And so Paul tells us that he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus because of a revelation from God. And while he was there, Paul took the opportunity to seek gospel unity. He had given the first 14 years of his post-conversion life to proclaiming the good news that it is Jesus plus nothing. That is your only hope of salvation with God. And because this was Paul's driving ambition, he wanted to make sure that he was not running that race in vain. Now it's important that we don't hear what Paul is not saying when he says, I want to make sure I wasn't running my race in vain. When he says, I wanted to make sure that this gospel proclamation that I've given the past 14 years of my life to, that it was not in vain, it's not that Paul, all of a sudden now, 14 years gone, was having personal doubts about this whole grace thing, and he just needed some reassurance. Someone to come along and pat him on the back and be like, no, 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 man, you're really good here. You're, you're on the right track. That's not what he was doing. Rather, knowing the importance of getting the gospel right. Paul wanted to make sure there was agreement in the gospel because he knows that if the enemy can worm a wedge into the church and begin to get people to think that there are multiple gospels, multiple ways of approaching God and being made right with Him, then he knows that there is a magnitude of eternal realities at stake. And so he's like, man, we've got to establish on the forefront of these things that there is unity in the church. There's not two gospels. There's not a circumcised gospel and an uncircumcised gospel. There's not a Pauline gospel and a Jerusalem apostles gospel. And so Paul rolls into Jerusalem for this meeting, and there's the reason why he brought Titus with him into this private meeting. It's because Titus is essentially a test case. You see what's going on here? Titus is going to be a test case for unity. Would Peter, James, and John receive Titus as a brother saved by grace, or would they reject him because he was uncircumcised? Because if they forced Titus to be circumcised, it'd signal there is no unity there between Paul and those Jerusalem apostles. There is no gospel agreement. The implication would be, Titus, you need to be circumcised. What they would be signaling is he is not truly right with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He needs to do a little little extra, sprinkle a little extra works on top of that before he's right with God. And so Paul's like, man, we've got to strike gospel unity here, so Titus, roll with me, my man. They go in and they're waiting to see how are the Jerusalem apostles going to respond. And by God's grace, guess what did not happen? Titus was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. In other words, the Jerusalem apostles, by not forcing Titus to be circumcised, agreed that, listen, it is faith in Christ alone and not any other performance or ritual that is necessary for salvation. Their acceptance of Titus was proof that they had unity in the gospel of God's grace. Thus, a great and resounding victory was won for the truth of the gospel. I mean, what greater place is there to be, right? Gospel unity among the saints is so sweet. It is so sweet to be able to stand on that foundation of, I have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then you can look at the person next to you and hear them saying the exact same thing. And you could be the most opposite of each other in personality and political inclinations and socioeconomic standing, the color of your skin, man, woman, doesn't matter you can look and go what you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ as well and then you link arms and then you look over and this person here is saying the same thing and this person over here is saying the same thing and this person over here is saying the same thing and you can look at the church that's on the other side of town who's saying the same thing see we're not the only gospel preaching church here in town there are other bodies of believers here in town who proclaim and articulate the good news of God's grace alone. That is your only hope of salvation, faith in Christ. It's good news for our local body of believers. It's good news for collaboration with churches here in town as we seek to push back the darkness. It's good news for our community groups to be unified in this way. It's good news for our discipleship. There is something sweet When gospel unity is the aroma of a body of believers. It paints a picture to the world when the foundation of grace upon which we stand, uniting the unlikeliest of people together, what happens is the watching world on the outside looks in and they go, what on earth is that thing about? And what it proclaims to their watching world is this, Jesus is better. It proclaims that Jesus is better. But if one thing is true, it's this. Gospel unity is a fragile thing. Which is why gospel unity is worth protecting. It's why gospel unity is worth protecting. That's what Paul says to us here in verses 4 and 5. You see, whether we realize it or not, gospel unity invites opposition. Listen. Satan hates grace. Satan hates grace. He delights to oppose what the grace of God unites. And this is what we see play out starting in verse 4 when Paul tells us that the reason why this matter of Titus and circumcision even arose in the first place is because, verse 4, false brothers secretly stole into this private meeting they slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they hate grace. They wanted to re-enslave us. They weren't satisfied with Jesus plus nothing. They wanted Jesus plus something. You see, where gospel unity is found, there will always be folks who try to divide what grace has unified. In Paul's case... Opposition to grace arose immediately while he was seeking to establish gospel unity among the apostles. He tells us that some false brothers wormed their way into our private meeting. One translation uses the phrase sham Christians to describe these false brothers. Another translation calls them so-called believers. In the original language, the word that gives us false brothers is pseudo-Adelphoi. Adelphoi Adelphoi being the phrase used often in the New Testament to describe the brothers and sisters who are in Christ. But these aren't just Adelphoi, they're pseudo-Adelphoi, fake Adelphoi, fake brothers. They're bearing the banner of Christian, but they're Christian in name only. There is nothing about them in the way of bearing fruit in their life that gives evidence that they are actual brothers. They're pseudo-brothers, sham Christians, so-called believers. So they can walk the walk and they can talk the talk. They're hanging out within the church. But when you start pressing them on this issue, what is your only hope of salvation? They would go, Jesus! Uh, Plus a little extra. This says Paul ought not to be. It ought not to be. We can't be unified on this forefront, guys. Because to add something to Jesus is actually to go back into slavery. You see, ultimately, these false brothers were spies pretending to be Christians. And their ulterior motive was to bring people back into slavery. The problem at hand among the churches of Galatia was more than a mere question of, are you circumcised or are you uncircumcised? And Paul, with gospel eyes, was able to see this issue plainly. As one brother put it, quote, "...the issue at hand was a matter of fundamental importance regarding the truth of the gospel, namely of Christian freedom versus bondage. The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that his acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace. So to introduce the works of the law And make your acceptance to make your right standing with God depend on your obedience to rules and regulations was to bring a man, to bring a woman made free in Christ into bondage once again, end quote. And so when these false brothers began to argue that in order to be saved, someone like Titus Needed to, yes, trust in Jesus, plus live according to the Jewish law, such as circumcision, Paul said, I did not yield in submission even for a moment. That is, as these pseudo-Christians began to argue for a Jesus plus something gospel, Paul did not give them the time of day so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, he said. For you and this is just sort of tan- tangential right now but it's just something that's pinging my brain here that you there at the end of that verse so the, the gospel might be preserved for you like if we were just a smidge more charismatic in here that'd be enough for us to like pull out the tambourines and the banners kind of thing right you guys track what i'm saying here because guess who the you is here in that verse go look in the mirror It's you, because this is the Jewish man Paul writing to the Gentile Galatians, and what he was arguing for back in the mid-40s A.D. is that there will be generations of people beyond this who will have their eternity affected forever if we somehow say, yeah, that whole Jesus plus something thing, I don't know that I really need to be unified on that. I mean, that might be good for those Jerusalem guys, but like mine's gonna be a little bit different. Then from that moment forward, there would have been this massive division and there would have been this argument from then until now of what's the right gospel? I mean, is it truly grace or is it grace plus a little like work sprinkled on top? Which one is it? And Paul says, no, 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 no. I would not yield in submission even for a moment because remember the subtlety of the spy. Remember the subtlety of the spy. These false brothers have the name Christian on top of them. Yeah. And they're there dropping Jesus talk. Yeah. And they're inviting people, Jesus, this, and salvation, that, and resurrection, great. And all of a sudden, your guard begins to go down. Well, they're talking about Jesus. They say they're a Christian. They've got a Bible, for goodness sake. They show up to community group. They're in discipleship relationships. But just when you tune your ear to what they're saying, it's Jesus' distortion at its essence. And Paul is here arguing, I want the truth of the gospel to be preserved for you, he says. Because he knew that to yield to any type of gospel distortion is to pollute the gospel. But the truth of the gospel is to be protected, not polluted. And just as there was danger of gospel distortion back then, it is no different for us today. Now, as we've already alluded to and I've already made mention of, the issue has obviously changed, yeah? Show of hands, anyone wants being tempted with a gospel distortion to add circumcision to, our, to, our, to the gospel of Jesus, anybody? Yeah, nobody, right? I mean, oh, okay, not, not a big deal. So if we're not careful in reading our Bible, again, a little pause, tangential thing. Like, when you read your Bible, like, right, you got to think. Yeah? Because the temptation would be like, all right, man, I'm trucking along. Personal Bible study time, man. You come to Galatians 2, 1 through 10, you're like, boring. Why? It looks like oh, the gospel, circumcision stuff. Ah, that's not my deal. And what you do is you just punch right past it. But the point isn't to punch right past it. The point isn't to pause and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to understand the Scripture. Because again, think in that fraction kind of thing. The numerator details of the situation is the Jesus plus something gospel here is circumcision. The denominator is this, gospel distortion. The common denominator exists today. There is gospel distortion at work in our world today. Granted, the numerator detail aspect of it is not circumcision being added to the gospel but it is such things like the self-help gospel. Yeah, for some of us, we've heard it, we've seen it. Maybe God saved us from it. That distortion known as the self-help gospel where the belief is that God helps those who help themselves. We ever heard that one before? I mean, I see that on Facebook all the time. God helps those who help themselves. So long as we just do our part well, Or at least in the back of my mind, we try to just, you know, calm our conscience by saying, well, at least I'm doing it better than the person next to me at work. God is obligated to help me. I mean, after all, God delights to help those who help themselves. The self-help gospel, what's it do? It puts man at the center because it believes that man has it within himself to do what it takes to get right with God. But the problem with the false gospel of the self-help ideology is that left to ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are incapable of helping ourselves in any way which would make us right with God. And so at the heart of the self-help gospel is this error that it is just basically... Christless in the sense that Christ isn't the center. And as we work through a couple others here in a minute, I just want to put this idea. There's Christless in the sense that they move Christ from the center, but they're also not Christless in the sense that there are many self-help gospels out there that are more than pleased, more than delighted to sprinkle a little Jesus dust into the mix of it. I see this all over Facebook as well. Love to use Scripture. Love to drop little Jesus quotes here and there. But when you start dialing in to what they're actually preaching, it's a gospel of you can do it. You're so great. God helps those who help themselves. Hey, it's a motivational whip it up together. So that way you can just sort of start trying to do some good things. Because if you do enough good things, then what you're going to do is put God in obligation to you. Because after all, God loves to help those who help themselves with a little Jesus sprinkled in. It's deceptive, friends. It's subtle, it's deceptive it's false now for others of us maybe we've seen this or we know people who've distor- who have submitted to the distortion of something known as the prosperity gospel and where the belief of the prosperity gospel is this is that basically god exists to give us what we want so whether it be wealth health material goods something in between, it doesn't matter. The point of the prosperity gospel is that God exists to grant you prosperity. And as with the self-help gospel, the prosperity gospel also puts man at the center of it all. It wrongly believes God is there to be used by you. If you just have enough faith or if you positively state the favors or the desires of your heart that you demand from God, then God, according to the prosperity gospel, is required to answer you. The chief purveyors of this distortion are the likes of Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes. I don't know how else to say this. If you're listening to them and you're feeding your soul and that kind of stuff, you're feeding yourself garbage. Okay? So the problem with this false gospel is that it forgets Jesus who said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, Luke 18. It forgets Jesus who said, be on guard against all kinds of greed, Luke chapter 12. It forgets Jesus who said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Why? Because Jesus knows that wealth, there's nothing inherently evil with wealth. But Jesus knows that wealth has a way of very easily becoming the God we love, the God we serve, the God we worship, the God we sacrifice for. Jesus knows that wealth has a way of making us self-reliant and deceiving us into believing because we're self-reliant by our wealth, then we have no need whatsoever to be Christ reliant. But in recent years, probably the most pervasive gospel distortion, which holds sway over many, is something called, and you've probably have heard this term before, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Big mouthful, let me explain it here by marching through these terms. According to this set of beliefs, this moralistic, therapeutic kind of gospel, there's a high value on being a moral individual. The aim is to just be a good person. You ever been just sharing the gospel with someone and it's like, what's your basically hope of being able to stand before God on that final day of judgment? What's almost always the instant answer that comes back? Well, I'm a good person. They're buying into the moralistic therapeutic gospel right there. I'm a good person. I've tried to do my best. I play nice with others. After all, bad people are the ones who go to hell. So if I try to do more good than bad, then God will take care of me and he'll make sure that I get to go into heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. It's therapeutic in that the central goal of life is to simply just be happy and god exists to make sure i am happy. he wants you to have your best life now. god doesn't need to be overly involved in your life. but it's nice to know that when you need him, he's out there for you to call on him, but in reality, like you just sort of like hope he sort of stays at a distance because you just don't really need him that much. Basically, in this view, this distortion, God functions as your cosmic therapist who exists to give you divine life tips from the Bible in your moments of crisis, but other than that, He serves no real purpose in your life. Now, the problem with this distortion, and really the problem with the previous two distortions as well, is they ultimately miss the mark of the one true gospel, In one way or another, they sideline the centrality of Jesus by making man the measure of all things, thereby making the grace of God obsolete. Notice that in the self-help gospel, prosperity gospel, the moralistic, therapeutic gospel, there's no need for grace. Why? Because you're just not really that bad. You're essentially good. You don't get all things right. But that's what that little Jesus cherry on top is for. So that way we can just sort of add that little Jesus essence to our life, ultimately making it to the way where we can stand before God on that final day and go, yeah, Jesus, but look, I was good. I was basically nice. I was best, especially nicer than my coworker, man. You should see the kind of emails he was sending. I wasn't doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, I didn't watch like all the best stuff, but like, right, we roll out all these things. Why? Because we're trying to add Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something. Jesus plus something. They make grace obsolete. Which is why Paul says, verse 5, we must not yield in submission even for a moment to these things. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, protected. For You you see, Paul was vigilant for the one true gospel. Why? Because he knew what was at stake in that conversation. It wasn't just gospel unity. It wasn't just Christian freedom. All these things are at stake, and he will talk about them later in the book of Galatians. No, he perceived... In this conversation, that what was at stake was the very hope of our right standing with God in Jesus Christ alone. And the great question to ask yourself is this Am I equally as vigilant for the gospel as was the Apostle Paul? Am I vigilant for the gospel? Can I sniff out a false gospel when it shows up on my Facebook stream? Can I perceive a false gospel when I'm chatting with my friend who claims to be a Christian, but the reality of their life is void of Christ? Can I discern when my own heart is prone to wander towards a Jesus plus something gospel? My vigilant in these things? There's a man named D.A. Carson, and concerning this reality, he says this, one generation will believe the gospel, the next generation will assume the gospel, and the following generation will deny the gospel. That is, if we fail to determine at all costs to protect the one true gospel. And so to drive home his first two points, Paul rounds into verses 6 through 10. And he just simply reminds the Galatians that the foundation of gospel unity is the one true gospel. The foundation of gospel unity is the one true gospel. Really, like this is just the point of verses 6 through 10, okay? Just look at them. You're a copy of Scripture. Paul tells us that from those... Who seemed to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential, notice this phrase here they added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. What he's driving at here is this. When I showed up in Jerusalem, they did not adjust my gospel, nor did they deny the gospel I proclaimed. There was unity there, he says. We were, we were standing on that same foundation. On the contrary to them adding something to me, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the I'm sorry, gospel of the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Two, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Three, notice the phrase here, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You see what's bookending the front end and the back end of verse 6 and 10 gospel unity gospel unity gospel unity i showed up jerusalem apostles here's my gospel jesus plus nothing only hope of salvation after the whole titus debacle with the false brothers that kind of thing that dust kind of settles and guess what paul says to the galatians when we walked out of that meeting peter james and john here we are what we're doing we're like we're sitting here like we're high-fiving one another yeah we're on the same team right man yeah we got the same gospel right we're unified in this right yes grace alone grace alone they didn't add anything to the gospel i was preaching to the uncircumcised they were preaching the same gospel to the circumcised we shook hands on it signaling that we have gospel unity founded on the one true gospel jesus plus nothing as the only hope of salvation so saints listen listen the truth of the gospel must be maintained the truth of the gospel must be maintained. I am telling you right now. There are people in your world who fall into this verse 4 and 5 deception of false brothers, and it's not a circumcision issue. There are people in your world right now who are believing false gospels, whether it's prosperity gospel, whether it's a social gospel, whether it's a self-help gospel, whether it is a justice gospel, whether it's a moralistic, therapeutic gospel. And as the ambassador of Christ, the missionary that God has called to that missionary field of those people who are in your world, we are called by the power of Christ to maintain, fight for, protect the truth of the gospel. And so I ask you this final question. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to protect the truth of the gospel? Are you willing to defend the one true gospel and proclaim the one true gospel to the next generation so that you might say along with the Apostle Paul, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, co-worker, Family member, neighbor, friend. Insofar as it was up to me, I did not yield in submission to any false gospel, not even for a moment. Oh, throughout my years, these false gospels were numerous. I've seen many false gospels come and go. I've seen some that were obvious false gospels, and I've seen some that snuck in and wormed their way into the circle of believers that were very subtle, but I did not give them the time of day. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, Rebecca. Preserved for you, Jonathan. Preserved for you, Judah. Preserved for you, Malachi. Preserved for you, little ones in the flock. Preserved for you, little ones in the herd. Preserved for you, little ones in the nest. Preserved for you, children of the little ones in the nest. Little ones in the flock. Little ones in the herd. May it be said of us saints this. We have added nothing to the gospel with which we have been entrusted. Let's pray. Father, help us to be vigilant, vigilant for the one true gospel. Help us to be united for the gospel. Help us to fight to protect the gospel. May we be vigilant to strive for the one true gospel. God, on our own, (laughs) we just can't do this. We are desperately in need of your power and your strength to see this done. God, help us. For your great name, help us. For the sake of the generations to come, help us. For the unity of this body of believers called Delta, help us so that when all is said and done, at the end of the day, we can step back and say, by the power of the Spirit of God within us, this body of believers was vigilant for the truth of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ alone, plus absolutely nothing else, is the only hope of salvation for those who are in Christ. God, do this work among us. Grow us in this way. Bond us together. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.